It's Wednesday, October the 13th, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Distinguished Policy Fellow here at Hoover, and I'll be your moderator today. Before I go any further, you probably notice something is very different about today's show. Well, this is the 60th episode of Goodfellows. We've been doing these since spring of last year's, but for the first time, we're actually doing this all together in one room. We have been all on the computer for the past year and a half, but today we're all together. And when I say we, it's not a Victorian we. It's me and the stars of the show, the reasons why you're watching this in the first place. And who are the stars? The economist Neil Ferguson. Excuse me, the, the historian. historian Neil Ferguson. <laughs> I got promoted. Promote demoted. The historian Neil <laughs> this Ferguson. This is what going live this in is real live. space does to you. <laughs> the economist John Cochran and the geostrategist slash eternal optimist, Lieutenant General H. R. McMaster, <laughs> Hoover Institution Senior Fellows, all Fellas, it's good to see you, finally, at long last, in person. Question for you. So here we are sitting in the commons of the Hoover Institution. If you're not familiar with the geography of our place, we have two office buildings, and there's an area in between called the commons where fellows come to think great thoughts or what passes for that in today's broadcast or not. I'm curious, a lot of the work that the three of you do is research, thinking, and writing. That's a lot of alone time. So how do you balance alone time versus more social settings like this? Do you want the truth? The truth is that this place is where work came to die. <laughs> if you come in here, you, you are not going to finish the article, much less the book. And so I have a, I've, I've a sh shameful admission, which is that I hardly ever come in here, except maybe to sneak a, a bar of, of uh, candy when I'm feeling really low energy. But it's, it's, it's a place that we're supposed to come to yes. and, and mingle. The problem is the culture of afternoon tea has not existed in the United States since the Boston Tea Parties. It doesn't quite work the way it does in Oxford and Cambridge. That's, that's the problem. Okay. Well, John, are you alone in your office with your curing machine? Uh, no, I, uh, I, I do come here. Um, I've been at places where the uh, thing works better, uh, that the, the tea um, ritual works better. This one actually works fairly well. I, come, come more often, Neil. I, uh, I come in to get my snack or my tea, and I often bump into interesting people that I wouldn't otherwise, and uh, learn something that I wouldn't have otherwise learned. Uh, and one of the great things about Hoover is there's people who aren't just economists. So I meet, you know, generals and historians <laughs> on occasion. Uh, so it, it can be a, a quite a fun place to come. HR, you're the lab of this group, the laboratory trip. You yeah. like everybody, so you, you surely. So I am kind of social, right? And which doesn't make it doesn't really help me with my writing, you know, uh, oftentimes. But it's a great it's a great place to come. I have really fond memories when I was a National Security Affairs Fellow mm -hmm. between uh, 2002 and 2003, and and I would come here and have you know just great conversations with the senior fellows, and you know I've missed it. You know I've missed it a lot during COVID, just bumping into friends here and fellow fellows. Uh, it is really a great place to have a good conversation. And, you know, sometimes you just get stuck writing, right? You just get, you just get worn down, you know, and you need it to refresh, you know, with some caffeine and then maybe a conversation with a colleague and maybe share, you know, the point at which, where you are in writing a book or an essay. And, and it, it does really help. So let's begin with Afghanistan. HR, last week you were at the House Committee on Foreign Relations and you had a message. Stop pretending. You know, I think we're still delusional about Afghanistan. What I'm concerned about is what we'll add on to, 
you know, the humiliation of a, of a surrender and a, and a retreat and a lost war in Afghanistan, we'll, we'll, we'll actually learn exactly the wrong lessons, which will set us up for future failures. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really, I think it's really time to stop pretending, you know, that, that we were fighting an enemy there that we preferred to fight instead of the actual enemy that we were fighting, which is the Taliban, which is a jihadist terrorist organization, which is interconnected and intertwined with other terrorist organizations, including the Haqqani Network. Siraj Haqqani is the, he's the, you know, he's in charge of the Ministry of Interior now in, in, in Afghanistan, and Al-Qaeda, right? And so this is a, a victory, not just for, you know, the Taliban, but for jihadist terrorists broadly. And so there, there are really important dangers associated with that. And I think, I think, Bill, what I wanted to impart, maybe more than anything else, mm. is that our failure in Afghanistan, if you had to pick one reason, I would say it is our short-term approach to the long-term problem there. And what happened is that short-term approach actually lengthened the war and made it more costly. You know, I want to push on this because I'm perpetual. This, this, we're going to come back to questions that we talk about all the time. But uh, throughout our adventures of the last 20, 30 years, winning the peace has been the problem. And I, I was even reading in the Wall Street Journal, not just the New Yorker, of, you know, the Afghans, at least the male Afghans, are sort of enjoying being able to walk around and, and not getting shot at. Uh, we never really gave them peace. Uh, we never won the hearts and minds, if you will. Um, what is the answer, if we have to do something like this again, to... Um, not having it be, you, you talk about war and the right enemy and so forth, but how do you, after you've invaded a country, uh, get it to some sort of stability that doesn't involve constant levels of violence? Well, I guess you have to ask a question here. What was the just end that we had in mind when we went into the war, right? We had just suffered the most devastating terrorist attack in history. We lost nearly 3,000 innocents, took trillions right. of dollars out of the U.S. economy. Uh, and so what we wanted to do was avenge that, certainly, to ensure that al-Qaeda could no longer have that capability to conduct those attacks, but also that the Taliban would no longer give them safe haven and support base, which we gave them the opportunity to give up the Taliban. They refused to do it. Uh, but really, the third objective, which was very important, was to ensure that Afghanistan never again became a safe haven and support base for terrorists who want to commit more attacks on the scale of 9-11. And so what was required for that was, was really a political outcome in Afghanistan, a government in Afghanistan that didn't have to be Denmark. It just had to be a government that was hostile to jihadist terrorists and a government that was strong enough with its security forces and other institutions to withstand the regenerative capacity of the Taliban, which was across the border, you know, in, in Pakistan. And I think that we didn't explain that objective well to the American people. And certainly we did not develop a sustained long-term strategy and policy to achieve that outcome. So I think it is really an astounding example of strategic incompetence. And you're right though, right? We don't have a problem in conducting military operations to defeat the fielded forces of, of an enemy. But what we have a problem doing is consolidating gains to get to those sustainable outcomes. There's some really good work on this. Uh, our colleague, visiting fellow here, Nadia Shadlow, has a, has a great book called War and the Art of Governance in which she argues it has never been an optional phase in war to have to consolidate these right. gains. And what we, what we fall back on after these frustrating experiences is what she calls American denial syndrome, right? We, we assume that we'll never have to do it again. But as another historian who wrote a great essay called Avoiding Vietnam, and in this, in this essay he argues that the effort to avoid Vietnam was in large measure a setup for the frustrations that we had in Afghanistan and Iraq 
This is Conrad Crane, who says, we have never been able to never do it again. So right. is there a chance that these investigations and commissions and so forth will lead to that outcome of how could we go into a country like Afghanistan, which we may have to for some, we'll have, there's a military objective you have to do, and now you've got a mess on your hands. And it's well, really, it's really how so, are we going to yeah. do it? How can we, are they, are they going to find lessons of where we screwed up there to just give a decent life to ordinary Afghans? Right, and this is an interesting question to me, just how is Congress studying what happened in Afghanistan? Well, you know, I, it's, it's through these hearings, right, in, yeah. in various committees and in, in the defense and, and, and foreign relations committees in, in particular. But what I, what I detected, you know, not big surprise, mm -hmm. was sort of a partisan bias in, in, the, in the questions that were asked. And what I tried to do was to be an equal opportunity critic across multiple administrations, because I don't think this is really a partisan political issue. I mean, essentially, I think the fundamental flaw was during the Obama administration, uh, during which the Obama administration, I think, created this illusion of, of the enemy and an illusion of the security problem in which Pakistan was going to be a partner. Really, like, how did that work out? Right. And that the, the Taliban wasn't really a problem at all. It was really al-Qaeda, and specifically al-Qaeda in Pakistan, because they pretended that there were no al-Qaeda left in Afghanistan. So uh, based on the, that, the, that really invention of a different war than the actual war that was going on, by the way, uh, they, they came up with a strategy that, in, that entailed announcing a reinforced security effort and then announcing the timeline for the withdrawal at the same time and then saying, well, we want to talk to our enemy while we've already given them our schedule for departure. I mean, how the hell does that work? Right. It's a, a complete you know, disconnect between what we're doing militarily and what we're trying to achieve politically and diplomatically. Then, of course, the Trump administration, I think, administered a corrective to this with the August 2017 South Asia strategy, but you know, sadly, President Trump backed off of that and doubled down on those same flaws of the Obama administration. And then, of course, uh, President Biden uh, you know, didn't make any changes to, to that approach, the capitulation agreement in February of 2020. Uh, and, and in fact, against, I think, what we now know was really best advice, that this is going to be a catastrophe unless he changes course, decided not to change course uh, and to, and to again, double down again uh, on, the, on the flawed approach of the Trump administration. Let me try a hypothesis uh, on you, HR, and this is a good one to, to try on you as someone who studied Vietnam, that we learned the military lessons from Vietnam, but we didn't learn the civilian or political lessons. And I, I believe the same thing will happen this time around. In other words, the US military looked at what had happened in Vietnam, and it went through a tremendous heart searching and, uh, and reassessment of its entire model. Uh, moving from the draft to all volunteer force was part of that. More importantly, a whole approach to, to counterinsurgency became part of the reinvention of American military power. Uh, and so I think the military learnt the lessons of, of Vietnam, but I don't think the civilians did. In fact, I think what you've observed about Washington today is pretty much what happened in the wake of Vietnam, which was that Democrats got amnesia about the fact that they had in fact been the ones who had escalated in <laughs> Vietnam, and a huge effort was made to lay the blame on Richard Nixon, who had in fact been trying to extricate the United States. Right. So the political lessons weren't learned. In particular, the lesson wasn't learned that the government of South Vietnam was doomed the minute Congress cut off aid to that government and made the, the fiasco, the evacuation of Saigon in 1975 inevitable. And in a, a sense, the same thing played out in Afghanistan. However good the counterinsurgency operation was, 
The reality was that the Afghan government was a hollow and corrupt entity entirely dependent on support from the United States. And when that was gone, so was the Afghan government. It feels like that's the real structural problem. We learn the military lessons, not the political ones. I think you're absolutely right about that. And, and you can see the pattern in Vietnam, especially after the Nozin's Yem coup in November of 1963, and then the sort of revolving door governments and the lack of legitimacy that the, that the South Vietnamese government had with large portions of the South Vietnamese population that gave an opening to Vietnamese communist forces in the South and that the North Vietnamese could exploit as well. I think the same problem is what we encountered in Afghanistan. We didn't put politics as the foundation of the overall policy and strategy. And recognizing that what we needed, of course, is a, a government that was just effective enough, legitimate enough. And so what did we do? We did everything the opposite of what maybe we should have done if we, if we did put politics at the center. So for example, instead of having a major diplomatic effort to bring Afghans together across ethnic lines and, and across these you know, various patronage networks associated with the old Mujahideen era elites, what did we do? We left them alone. We closed our consulates in Herat, in Jalalabad, in Kandahar, and, and just and went into this little cobble bubble and instead went to talk to these jackasses in, in, uh, in, in gutter, you know, the, the, the Taliban, who were just a shop window for those who were continuing their murderous campaign uh, against the Afghan people. So I, I think that you're absolutely right. We learned the wrong lessons in terms of overall strategy and how to integrate the military instrument with other instruments of, uh, of national power and efforts of like-minded partners well, to get to the outcome. And let me, let me put in a word for economics as well. Yes. Ordinary Afghans need to be able to grow crops, get their stuff to market, buy stuff, sell stuff, drive trucks around without 75 checkpoints and, and being afraid of being blown up in the middle of the night. And, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of, they're going with the Taliban for the moment because that's available to them. And that, you need, yes, political solutions, but I think there's also a view that uh, in a country like this, oh, we'll just send them plane loads with a ca cash. Well, that's not Didn't a work. functioning yeah. economy or, or a life for I, people. Actually, the, the economics is a really interesting subject, partly because at the core of the economy is opium. Right. Uh, and a central paradox of the American presence was that we needed the Afghan economy to go somewhere, but the place that it naturally goes is something that we don't really condone. I want to recommend a couple of additional books. You mentioned Nadia Shadlow's. Emil Simpson, one of my former students, yeah. wrote a brilliant book, War from the Ground Up, about his experiences as a British officer yeah. with the uh, Gurkhas in Afghanistan. Yeah. And his argument, which is, is a terrific one, is that in a way we approached Afghanistan with a very Western model, which is that mm -hmm. there's the enemy and there's us and we got to pursue victory. And much of what we did militarily, Emil argues, is actually to create the enemy because there were an enormous number of people, different uh, tribal interests that weren't really aligned to begin with. Right. Uh, and we kind of converted them into the enemy by some of our rather poorly thought through actions. Uh, the other book which I really have enjoyed reading recently has just been published, and that's Carter Mulcazian's History of the US War in Afghanistan, which covers the whole 20 years, mm -hmm. and left me with a, a puzzle really, and I wonder what your thoughts are on this. He, he kind of left, left me thinking that there was a way forward with the kind of term insurance approach where you keep a force in Afghanistan, not as small a force as the one that we ended up with towards the end, not, not a really tiny force, but you keep a force there which prevents the Taliban taking the country back. And it's not an enormous commitment, uh, neither financially nor in terms of manpower, but there was actually a sustainable way forward. Whereas we were told there was a choice, and this was the Biden administration's line, we either get out completely and accept the chaos, or we have to escalate in a really significant way. Right. And therefore, we're going to choose the former. 
I don't know if that was a false choice. What no, is the I, case, I, I think I think it is a false choice. I mean, and I think from an economics perspective, compare the cost now of dealing with the catastrophe compared to the cost of, of this insurance policy. And essentially, when we presented the options to President Trump in August of 2017, this is really what fell out of that discussion. And remember, the president, you know, he was predisposed toward a complete withdrawal from Afghanistan. He had said so on the, on the campaign trail, and that's why nobody in the administration really even wanted to touch it. I had to really kind yes. of almost force that discussion to happen and presentation of multiple options. Mm -hmm. And when we presented those options, the first one we briefed him on was complete withdrawal. And then the picture we painted was what's going on in Afghanistan right, right now. And, and when he looked at that, when he looked over the precipice of what this really looks like, he made the decision to, to support the Afghan government security forces at a sustainable level, to really, I think very importantly, take off the timeline so that we stopped a lot of the hedging behavior on the part of Afghans. This was, I think, one of the reasons why we had this, this, this organized crime activity that was weakening the state because really we, we encouraged a short-term mentality among Afghans too. Build up their power base in advance of a post-US Afghanistan to prepare for the civil war that's coming. The way to do that was through a range of corrupt and criminal activity that was weakening the institutions we're trying to build. And of course, the short-term mentality also was, I mean, not to put it crudely, but you know, just get as much milk out of the international cow as you can as it wanders across the Afghan plain for the right. last time. So the idea was to have a sustained and sustainable level of commitment, recognizing that Afghanistan was going to be a ward of the international community for the foreseeable future. Well, guess what? Now it's still a ward of the international right. community, and it's under Taliban control, right. they get the is, money. and they get the money. Right. Neil, you mentioned uh, Nixon and Vietnam. Um, this summer was 50 years since Henry Kissinger went to China, sat down with Joe and Lai, which was an interesting meeting because I understand, first of all, Joe was quite surprised to find out that Americans did not smoke. Uh, but secondly, <laughs> Joe in that meeting told Kissinger that if we're going to move forward on relations, you have to take our position on Taiwan, which Kissinger said we cannot publicly do that. You know Henry Kissinger. You're working on a book on Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger was on our campus um, for the memorial service for George Shultz. Should we be looking at Henry Kissinger right now as we try to figure out Afghanistan, but also as we try to figure out how to move forward on China? Well, it's a remarkable task that I took on many years ago now, which was to write <laughs> the great man's biography. Right. I've done the first volume. I'm in the midst of writing the second volume. One reason I don't come into the comments too often is I got to get that that right. book done. Yeah. He turns 100 uh, in 2023, and I got to get the book out by then. It's right. actually a, a really fascinating time to revisit the 1970s. I'm constantly struck by how many of the issues are essentially the same issues that we confront today. We did a past Goodfellows on the and, 70s. Right. And, and so yeah. when, you, when you look at uh, the challenges Kissinger faced uh, when he first uh, was appointed national security advisor at the end of 1968, it's the, it's the full suite. It's the, the failing war that you have to somehow extricate the United States from in the case of Vietnam. Uh, you've got the, the Russian problem. Right. Uh, you've got, of course, the Middle East. And I've just been reading Martin Indyk's excellent new book on Kissinger's Middle Eastern uh, strategy. And the great strategic insight, which was as much Richard Nixon's as Henry Kissinger's right. was, Let's bring China into the international system. Let's have a relationship with the People's Republic of China. And let's use that as a lever to try to change the geopolitics of the Cold War, put the Soviet Union on, on the back foot, maybe get us some leverage in the negotiations with the North Vietnamese. And let's not forget uh, a really important part of what Kissinger achieved was to kick the Soviet Union out of the Middle East as a power broker. And this is often forgotten, but right. as Martin Indyk shows, it's really one of the 
the most important achievements of American statecraft uh, in the 1970s. So yeah, when, uh, when uh, Dr. Kissinger was back on the Stanford campus uh, to pay his uh, final respects to his old friend, George Shultz, it was a quite uh, moving moment to have, how many secretaries of state did we have on the premises? Uh, so Five, the, I think. Well, there was Baker, yep. Blinken. Um, our boss. Our boss. Let's not forget Condi Rice. Yeah, four. Uh, and so this, yeah. this was a, an extraordinary moment. And I think it's, it's really important that we remember the achievements of that, of that generation. I mean, George Shultz's achievements were right. uh, comparably extraordinary. Think about the ways in which the Cold War was brought towards a successful conclusion mm -hmm. uh, on George uh, Shultz's watch. So uh, as an historian, I'm convinced that we can't really figure these issues out from first principles. There isn't a model. Maybe there is an economics, but in geopolitics, there isn't a model that's telling you yeah. what to do. And we certainly have to look back in the 1970s and ask ourselves the question, 50 years on, right. did we create a Frankenstein in the form of a China that went from being essentially a very useful tool to use against the Soviets in right. Cold War One to being our antagonist in Cold War Two? Right. Uh, your column on Facebook, Neil, for Bloomberg. Uh, interesting premise. Mark Zuckerberg wants to be John D. Rockefeller, but like Icarus flying to the sun, maybe not a good idea to want to be Rockefeller. Well, I don't think he wants to be. I mean, no. I, I have had one-on-one -on -one meeting only with Mark Zuckerberg, and, and my meeting with him was that long after the 2016 When did election. you meet him? It was 2017, I think. Uh, not long after I'd moved here from Harvard. And I was already thinking about a book that became The Square and the Tower, uh -huh. a book about networks. Okay. And my observation uh, to him was, you're in danger of becoming John D. Rockefeller and William Randolph Hearst combined. In other words, <laughs> the government's you're, you're, you're going to have the power right. of Standard Oil uh, in terms of the scale your, your near monopoly on social media. But, mm -hmm. but you're also going to be in the firing line in the way Hearst was as a newspaper baron, the, right. the, the crown prince of, uh, of yellow journalism, because Facebook is not just producing oil. Facebook is a, a dominant player in a rapidly changing public sphere. And it had just played, obviously, a key role in the 2016 election. So I said, watch out, because Facebook is going to become a target for all kinds of criticism uh, as people realize mm -hmm. just what happened in 2016 and the role that you played. And that time has arrived. Well, I think it, it sure. began actually mm -hmm. pretty soon after that, that the criticism was ramped up. And I think there, there's a couple of interesting issues here that we, we should discuss, one of which is very obviously in John's territory. I can see he's poised. Take, he's, got his he's got his notepad ready. It's like, good, good here comes Chicago. No, this, is, um, this is a point of departure between the fellows. Neil is very much, we're going to make Neil a parliamentarian. Neil is very much spontaneous. John likes the notes. So. Well, I'll, 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 I'll just tee it up for John. So there's a, there's a debate about uh, whether uh, Facebook is a monopoly, yes. uh, or maybe more broadly, whether the big tech companies have become monopoly companies that need to be broken up the way right. that Standard Oil once upon a time was. Facebook Do we need right. to revive a version of antitrust right. that says, if you're too big, you get broken up. It doesn't really matter whether you're something that consumers appreciate, you're just too big. Right. Uh, and that means changing the way we thought about antitrust uh, going all the way back really to the 1960s and saying Robert Bork was wrong. We need to go back to the original antitrust definition, which is just big is bad, right. big has to go, end of story. So that's question one. Mm -hmm. I think question two is, do there, do there need to be greater regulations or uh, more powerful regulators overseeing the big tech companies? And, that's, and that raises a whole different set of questions. I mean, after all, let's ask ourselves, how well has it gone to empower regulators 
at the federal level over other industries? Do we want social media Amtrak? Right. Uh, or do we want the kind of regulation that brought us such a wonderful financial stability in 2008? Right. So there's a second set of questions. And then finally, I think there's a, there's a question that has kind of been forgotten. And that is whether the fundamental legislative framework within which Facebook operates mm -hmm. is anachronistic. Because the ideas of the mid-1990s, when the internet was kind of just at a fledgling state, uh, embodied in Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which said, you're a platform, if bad stuff is on your platform, it's not your problem. Right. But, oh, by the way, if you do want to do some editing, uh, I won't use the word censoring, if you want to do some editing, that's you okay too. That's fine. okay too. So basically, under Section 230, Facebook, right. one of the biggest corporations, one of the most profitable corporations in, in the world, can be a platform when it suits it, but a publisher when it suits it. And I, I personally think, this is the argument of the piece, uh, that that's the problem, and antitrust is the wrong solution uh, because it really targets the wrong part of the problem. But John, uh, where, where do you stand on this? Should we be breaking up Facebook? Should there be 20 or 50 little Facebooks? No, for just the reason you mentioned. This is not, even if you grant uh, the old-fashioned view of monopoly, this is not an old-fashioned monopoly. They give stuff away for free. <laughs> uh, so, uh, uh, so just just being big isn't bad. I, as an economist, um, I also look at monop monopolies. D even bigness doesn't last anywhere near as long as you think it does, unless the government is there propping it up. Uh, when people tell me, "Oh, you know, Facebook and Google, they own everything," I say, "Yes, that's right." And remember how Yahoo and AOL and Netscape—they've got just a dominant position, and they're the portals, so no one will ever, you know, uh, these things go away. You look at the actual products are pretty awful. You look at Facebook, it's kind of a clunky thing. Google, Google won't serve me up any sort of, they keep sending me the same ads over and over again. Um, these, are, these are today's dinosaurs, uh, but in the, in the natural scheme of things, they will, be, they, they will go away uh, because new competitors will come to new defense. I read about Facebook, they're gonna spend a billion dollars on their new plan, which is to have us all look at virtual reality headsets. Right. Billion dollars down the rat hole is every bit as uh, likely with that. Now, I do want to agree. Uh, the danger I see is that the, the let's call it censorship, um, the, a lot of the will to regulate is the fact that uh, Facebook is right now, uh, um, one of the cent Facebook and Twitter are one of the central ways people communicate, and that censorship right now is very politically useful. And if you're in the government, Big threats to regulate in order to get Facebook to get your narrative up and the other guy's narrative down is uh, very useful. So the natural tendency of regulation is capture, two-way capture. The, um, the, the not just the industry captures the regulators to protect them from competition and ensconce a monopoly position, mm -hmm. but the regulator captures the industry and gets political support from the industry. And this is just a delicious two-way buffet, as far as I can see. If you're a politician, what you want is to, is to regulate Facebook so that Facebook uh, gets your message out and silences the other message. And that's the, the reason why the sort of the standard regulatory approach I see leading exactly in that direction. And like with the big banks after Dodd-Frank, enshrining them yeah. as, the, as, the, uh, as the perpetual monopolies that they would not otherwise be in the face of right. disruptive But two innovation. things about Facebook, Neil. Number one, it's seen as being politically having a thumb on the scale. 
But then secondly, being injurious to your health. You've probably seen the stories about Instagram supposedly is bad for young girls because they go on it and they get a, get a poor can, outlook can on I life. Can I add a third, too, because I want to hear third? what you think yeah. about this, too, is, that, <laughs> is the international dimension of this, right? That, mm-hmm. that uh, of course, you know, Facebook doesn't have any access to China, but the Chinese Communist Party has access to Facebook and is purchasing ads internationally that cut directly against our interests. And the Chinese Communist Party is becoming much more savvy, more like the Russians, in polarizing us and pitting us against each other. So how could it be that Facebook gives them unfettered, really, access to their platform to kind of screw with us, you know, uh, and, and, uh, and, and they have no access uh, to the Chinese population? And there's a wider international dimension, which is that Facebook clearly has uh, played a malign role in multiple emerging markets and developing countries uh, where it has taken uh, its responsibilities pretty lightly with disastrous consequences. Just well, think of what's happening so in what, Myanmar. So, Myanmar. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think there, there are, a, there's a classic analogy here with the right. Standard Oil story, which began with muckraking journalism. I mean, you, you know you're in trouble as a big company when there's a campaign of press criticism and the muckrakers get going. And the Wall Street Journal uh, was the latest player in the muckraking game with a succession of revelations based, it turned out, on one source, one former Facebook employee who decided to... Uh, give them a documents dump. But a lot of this criticism, it seems to me, fits into that pattern where the media stirs up public outrage. The politicians then say, something must be done. We must regulate. We must trust us. But you have to ask yourself, what is the motivation for the media to go after Facebook? And the answer is clear. Facebook ate their lunch. I mean, the ad dollars go to Facebook and Google. Now, they do not go uh, to the owners of the major national newspapers. So so I think one has to be a little skeptical here of some of the motives behind these hit pieces, and not all the hit pieces are entirely comparable or or entirely, in my view, credible. He's he's an easy target. He was an easy target in the movie, and he's still an easy target for print journalism just in terms of the way he carries himself, even though he does a lot of philanthropy here in the Bay Area. He's still, to a lot of people, just a strange, exotic creature. Which is why I brought up William Randolph Hearst, four years ago, because if you haven't seen the movie Citizen Kane, it doesn't end well for somebody who has great aspirations to play a part in the public sphere. It's not that long ago that there were talks of a presidential run, which was hubris gone crazy. It wasn't that long ago Mark Zuckerberg told David Remnick uh, of The New Yorker that his favorite figure in history was Caesar Augustus. I mean, this is where you get into the William Randolph Hearst territory because you become far from a a, a titanic political figure, you become a hate figure. And the key thing here is, from the vantage point of the other big tech companies, it is highly attractive that one of their number should become the fall guy. Because after all, if you're Google, it's like, well, this is terrible, isn't it? Because all the heat is on Facebook. And you can see where this movie is going, can't you? I can well imagine that at the end of all these antitrust actions, the one that really turns up trumps is you've got to break up Facebook. And that means you've got to give up Instagram and you've got to give up WhatsApp. And that, I think, is where we might end up. But, but here to your point, John, is the irony. The core product of Facebook is a declining product. It is no longer cool with the young. That's and right. ironically, to your point, HR, right. who is the competitor that is eating Facebook's lunch as we speak? That's right, TikTok, TikTok. a Chinese-owned yeah. AI-powered video uh, app and site which is currently imbibing the data of American teenagers as if drinking from a fire hose. So this is a a story full of ironies. And editing their content to prevent any kind of opposition to the Chinese Communist Party's actions like 
you know, genocide in Xinjiang. Let's also remember how well this worked out in the past. Oh, Microsoft's got to give up Internet Explorer and stop giving it away for free. Well, that solved the problem, didn't it? Uh, even, you know, breaking up Standard Oil. Did, did you, did, what difference did that make? But there's and an argument add, that the antitrust action against Microsoft was a good thing because right. without it, it would have been harder for Google to get going. I think that's quite a good argument, even although, let's face it, in the end, that antitrust action was a fail. But I also, I also wanted to add, uh, you know, William Randolph Hearst is a good example because there was a lot of misinformation or fake news, depending how you want to call it. They called it yellow in, in the journalism. Yellow journalism. Yellow journalism right. was full of complete, right. uh, com complete craziness for a long so time, and been, we came out okay. There now, was, there the been. answer is competition. Competition is the salve for all wounds here, and that's not competition enforced by the Federal Trade Commission, but competition enforced by upstart competitors able to come in in a regulatory and we environment. Might to, we might want to take this on at some point, right? What happens to, this, to the fourth estate, yeah. right? Because we're in a really bad situation now. And, and one of the reasons we're in a bad situation is, be, I think, because of their business models and because of the failures associated with giving up so much of their market to social media companies that they have really doubled down on getting a loyal base and doing right. so by being, I think, more and more ah. partisan. Yeah. Right, and more and more doctrinaire to appeal to certain segments. And also, segments, HR, you know? more and more focused on getting content that will go viral on, you guessed it, Facebook right. Right. or the other social media platforms. The story that I think is really interesting here is the anti-vax problem, which right. we're going to talk about in a minute. That, that, that it seems to me that one reason Americans have been so resistant to vaccination, despite the fact that there was a very high-efficacy, low-risk vaccine available and available in abundance, uh, by the summer of this year has a lot to do with the way anti-vax conspiracy theories have been promoted on platforms but, such but, as Facebook. So let me, and that let me has led to loss of life. Maybe a hundred, maybe 200,000 deaths could have been avoided if it hadn't been for the anti-vax campaign. And that, I think, is a really major cause of harm that has arisen from the power of these platforms, in particular Facebook. Well, let me be a defender here. Okay. Uh, the Nobel Prize was recognizing um, not Facebook versus media in the United States, but in countries like Russia and the Philippines where there is horrendous censorship. And where in fact, at least the first round of social media was extremely useful for getting information out of a censored media and a propaganda campaign. Uh, now, if that's not working as well as it should, and you know, Facebook also wants to operate and make money, so they are, they're gonna go along with the censorship. But it shows you the possibility of social media as, as the one way of getting around. Now, what's, what's happening here? Uh, I think we're missing the big story, which is that the mainstream media, you touched on it a little bit, uh, but in their desire to get clicks and to please their own uh, base, the mainstream media has gotten completely away from their fact-based skepticism that they used to have. And or, now- or just basic standards, right? Basics, they are by right, and large yeah. completely devoted to uh, advancing the narrative of their own political party. The result being that, that fewer and fewer people trust the mainstream media, uh, fewer and people, you know, anti-vaxxing spreads because we're being lied to by our, our government officials. Uh, um, so, uh, and, and there isn't a mainstream media that's out there critically saying, oh, you know, you tell us this now, you told us that later, how does this add up? So it's the, the real problem is the mainstream media having abdicated its responsibility of being the ones who hold to account and try to have some standards and some facts. And I, I just know many examples, right, from when I was in the position of National Security Advisor, when I was convinced the journalists knew what they were, what they were publishing was wrong, but it was just too juicy a story to let go, right? And, and you know, members of my staff would call and say, this is just flat wrong. But they just couldn't resist it. It was too good of a headline 
which gets back to the point that you guys are making is that you know they're, they're in competition with this sort of pseudo media as well as the as well as uh, social media. People have found... gossiped forever, and they've had conspiracy yes. theories forever. And the more that they understand that their sources of information are being censored and lied to, the more they gossip. Now we have a little better technology for gossiping, but uh, that's not uh, you know the fundamental reason is why are they gossiping and not you know reading. HRE triggered when you hear the phrase fake news. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think what's so sad about this is this is all connected to malign actors, right, who are, right. Who are operating continuously against us. I think what's really important to note is that we talk about election meddling, right? It's 2016 and, and 2020, but really the Russians don't give HR, a, they, they, they don't really care who wins Russians, the election. If the Russians I mean, for 10 bucks of fake, of fake ads on, on Facebook could have swung the election, why did Hillary Clinton with, I don't know, $80 million No, no, this is, this the, is the problem. They, they weren't trying to swing the election at all. What the, all the, what the Russians care about is that a large number of Americans doubt the legitimacy of the result. That's what they're going for. And even during the 2016 election, 80% of the Russian bot and troll traffic and appropriation of sites and everything else was aimed at issues of race, right? A distant second to that was immigration. A distant third was gun control. Americans issues that were already divided on, divide us further, make the debate more vitriolic, pit us against each other, but mainly the objective is to diminish our confidence in our common identity as Americans and in our democratic principles and institutions and processes. Right. That's what they're going after. Though it's worth saying that even if the Russians were not doing that and even if the Chinese were doing were a fine job, we're doing a fine job. We're doing a fine job. Let's do polarization <laughs> no. on social media. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. And okay, you had a you had a clever segue. Well, my segue was back <laughs> to the pandemic, which is now we'll let you, you know, which you well, you told us we were going to talk about the, the pandemic. You made this. It was a spoiler alert. Here's what we're going to talk about. And I, I know. thought to myself, we never get through the agenda. But since we're going to try, no. just we're not going to make it today. It's let's, probably our let's, last. Yeah, let's no point. Let's half a half a minute. On the pandemic, it's always a, a three-hour. We've reached agenda. a fascinating point in the pandemic where it's actually yeah. over. Yes, i.e., we're and transitioning together. to the end. So happy, you guys are even which, better looking at person. Which pr I don't know. It's like, isn't this a <laughs> isn't this great? And nobody can be um, inadvertently muting themselves, which also helps. <laughs> yeah, but but we actually, this is proof well, that the here's the proof the pandemic is, too. is yeah. effectively over, yeah. Yeah. and yet we're going to carry on for months, maybe even longer than months, doing a whole set of having a whole set of arguments about. Uh, about masks, about regulations, uh, and I'm, I'm puzzled by the inertia here. Yeah. Uh, and, and indeed, the media are still talking about this as if it's still an ongoing problem. Oh, wait till the winter comes, much worse lies ahead. But in truth, if one looks at the world where vaccines have been widely made available, this thing is coming to an end, and it would be effectively yeah. completely over if there had been more success in selling vaccines to the skeptics. So I just want to take the mo a moment to say it's over, not, not that it's going away, but just that we're into the endemic phase, and that is a cause for celebration. Question, if you fly Southwest Airlines, do you think it's over? Well, that's what I mean. We're having, going to have an argument about vaccine mandates, right. just as we're going to have arguments about, about masks. And in some, in some measure, I think, all of this is going to just be fresh politicization of a public health issue that should never have been politicized in the first place. I mean, back in the 1950s, you didn't have a political argument about yes or no, the polio vaccine. People just want the vaccine. <laughs> yeah, right. And I, you know, I sense that this is kind of going to plague us for months long after it really is a major public health issue because everything has become politicized. 
Issues that were never political before, or at least were much less political, have now become politicized in ways that have hurt the United States. And not States. just politicized, but, but become right. badges of political yeah. tribal allegiance. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, things are politicized like who's going to get the contract to repave yeah. the road, but that, that's, these, these are now, uh, you, you wander around, Palo, people riding bicycles around Palo Alto put their masks on to say, you know, it's I'm a badge. They're driving to, alone to, in their cars. Driving right. alone in their cars. <laughs> yeah. I like, the, I like the story that people are wearing masks more than helmets on their bikes on the Stanford campus. Shout out to the Stanford Review for carrying, for doing the research. So I think we're in a kind of slightly post-pandemic phase where the, the theater around these measures is going to persist. Uh, and it's going to persist for political but, but reasons. Let me, this is a very sad one because we had uh, much quicker vaccination would have stopped this whole Delta variant fall right. that we had. Right. Yeah. We had the technology. Can you imagine uh, our ancestors in 1350 with the plague learning that over a weekend we developed a vaccine that stops this disease in its tracks. It took the FDA close to a year to let us have it if we want it. And then we're still fighting about whether, you know, which team yeah. takes it and which doesn't have And, and this, you know, this was all too predictable, right? Because it became so politicized. I remember when my, my friend, uh, Gus Perna, General Gus Perna, I think he was one of the real unsung heroes of this because he helped put together the logistics plan, right? Remember, he was much pilloried because, you know, they, 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 the, you know the, the, the vaccines weren't out instantly to everybody, you okay. know, who, who needed them. But he, I think, did a phenomenal job in, in planning this and, and making this, a, you know, a public and, and private sector enterprise. But he said from the beginning, when he was interviewed on 60 Minutes right before the vaccine rollout, what, what worries you about the, the logistics and everything? He said, the only thing that worries me is that we're going to get this perfectly good vaccine that is going to be the solution to this problem and that not enough Americans will take it. Yeah. But and, let me, and, and, uh, so my, my insight on, on this, we, we, it's the sad fact of America now that everything is, as the joke goes, either mandatory or forbidden. And we went right. from forbidden to, to mandatory. And there's this wonderful, H, let's put HR in charge. There's this wonderful common sense in the middle. If I operate a private business, right. I am allowed to, on my property, require that people on that property yeah have a vaccine. That seems perfectly reasonable. Uh, you know, lo local conditions differ, uh, different kinds of businesses differ, where it makes sense to differ. Could we have just gentle incentives towards it, Max? And we, 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 we oscillate between either it's forbidden, because the FDA says you can't have it even if you want it, and we're, you know, the evil cops are gonna come put it in your, in, in, you know, for, hold you down and force you to have it, which is not happening, but that's, right. that's the image that people have of vaccine mandates. And then the absurdity of mandates being forbidden, which is, I see, I sort of reduct you out absurdum. But, but Republicans forbidding you know, private hey, people know, on the, their private the people, property for right. demanding people, that yeah. other people come on The people I feel happens. sorry for are satirists, right? I mean, there's no room left for satire. Yeah. I mean, half of this you read that you think, is this the Onion or is this the Washington Post? You really can't tell the difference. But there was but so just, much room in the middle for just gentle right. incentives to get the to get the thing done without having to have. But, but you know, I, and you know, but we're we're you know we're here trying to define the ideas of a free society. It is basic, very basic, that in a free society, in a time of emergency such as a pandemic where public health is at stake, there will have to be limits on individual liberty. And it just yeah. seems to me like a great proportion of our fellow Americans have lost sight of one of the very foundational principles of a free society that go, goes all the way back to the 18th century, the time of the founding. But even there, uh, we've lost the capacity for common sense in the middle. You don't have to have a vaccine deal. If you don't want one, you don't have to have one. But if you want to come into the office at Hoover, you're perfectly welcome to believe your anti-vax stuff that'll you know grow green hair on your head or whatever. But uh, 
stay home uh, because, you know, at, at Hoover, you're not, that's the kind of, you know, that's how you deal with this in a sensible way, with this disease in a sensible way. If it were much more communicable, if it would had a 100% death rate, then maybe we go to your house like smallpox. Yeah. When we smallpox breaks out, debate. we don't screw around. Yeah, we wouldn't be having this debate if COVID had been as bad as smallpox. If there was smallpox, you know, then we, we draw a ring around your house, we come, we put it in your arm, and there's yeah. just no let discussion. Me, let me point out that well before COVID came along, if we hopped into a car and drove up the 101, went across the Golden Gate Bridge in Marin County, you would find legions and legions of people who refuse vaccines. Why? Because they listen to Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and other people that are convinced it'll give their children autism. Well, our colleague, Rene Duresta, just across the road at the Stanford Internet Observatory, was working on the anti-vax network. Right. Before COVID, I remember reading her stuff. I and, cited it in the Square and the Tower because yeah. it seemed to me like a potentially very dangerous network. And, and this is not flyover America, folks. And, this is Marin County. Right. And, and I've got to tell you, okay, well, again, again, we again, stuff about again we're, kinds of we are, they eat and how you colon cleanse and you know what kind of plot product. Careful to see your neighbors. Are talking it all about. seems cranky. It all seems cranky. Well, until for sale at Whole Foods, I and mean, it's <laughs> yeah. ridiculous. And, 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 I just want to say we are doing this to ourselves, but I'm telling you. Uh, you know, hostile external actors are magnifying the anti-vax movement in a major way. Yeah. You know, and and uh, and I think maybe educating people about that can, can help maybe bring people to their senses as well. Does that play out geopolitically? If you are Russia trying to sell a lousy Sputnik vaccine, do you just say, "Point, look at these messed up Americans here, use our product"? Well, yeah, the Russians have a problem, right? HR, because in fact, their death toll from COVID has been extremely high. This, yes. There's blowback and disinformation. Putin apparently has a coughing the Russian, right, another problem. Nobody in Russia wants <laughs> right. the vaccine right. because yeah. even if it worked, nobody would believe it. And everybody the, in Russia, this is where we're heading. Exactly. Everybody in Russia knows that everything you read is completely exactly. false, so they don't believe anything. So the true death toll in Russia is probably much higher than the much official higher. number. That's, right. That's one of the reasons the economist is estimating a much higher global death toll. Right. So, I, And I think the interesting thing about weaponizing uh, falsehood and disinformation right. is clearly in a completely internet interconnected world it can come it back, back and bite you yeah, in the ass. And I think that's what happened to Putin. I also st I still disagree with you on the power of this sort of thing. I mean there's if there is free corrective information, uh, what the Russians can sell among I mean we're doing it to ourselves as you say. Yeah. But it's it's not yeah. clear that false messages like that do do much good. Do you guys happen to know what the lockdown capital of the world is right now? The city that's gone the longest in a COVID lockdown? Australia, right? Australia. Which city in particular? Is it Melbourne? But Bingo. Yeah. Melbourne. Yeah. So city just ended their lockdown 107 days. Melbourne has restrictions through the end of October the 26th, actually. It'll be 267 days on lockdown. And, and extreme lockdown. I'm, I'm really interested that, our, uh, that the Australians have... Put yes. up with such extreme restrictions. But John, on why did, what gives you the idea that there's a particularly strong libertarian tradition in Australia? You seem to have forgotten I, the country's I just, I just want origins. To hear your, <laughs> I, I just want to hear your Aussie imitation at this point. But how do you, I mean, what historians tell me, how do you lock down a society for nine months and what happens to society when people are locked up that long? Well, resisting the temptation to make tasteless jokes about prison colonies, I think what's interesting here is that in, in their peculiar situation geographically, Australia and New Zealand thought we can have a zero COVID policy and make right. it work. And to be fair, uh, the death toll in relative terms has been much, much lower yeah. uh, in Australia and New Zealand than in the US and the UK. Uh, I mean, actually, fascinatingly, the English-speaking world has gone in all kinds of different directions in the face of this threat. 
so it's easy to beat up on the Australians and the New Zealanders for the strictness of, of their regimes. But they did avert a very significant number of deaths by what they did. But they didn't uh, take the opportunity to, now, we'll keep everybody out and we'll vaccinate everybody here so that we can, in some sense, get back to well, it. Well, to be fair, they've caught up. I mean, they, there was a lag and they have caught up and Australia is, is reopening now. So that episode is coming to an end. You could say that they could have got their act together faster on vaccination, but they have done and they had strong uh, quarantine right thing uh, pr protocols as yeah. well, right? Where you know you didn't get to pick the hotel. It was sort of like you know you can wind up in a Motel Six or the Ritz Carlton. Well, you know, just I hope if we do some investigation. My worry about this whole COVID thing is that as usual, America is going to enshrine whatever was done last time as uh, the absolute best thing to do. Of course, unless the president was of a different political party, in which case it was the worst thing to do. Oh. Uh, rather than have, you know, the retrospective commission that says, okay, what was uh, cost and benefit, what worked and what didn't, because most of what we did did not work at all. It was a horrendous waste of money in people's, uh, people's livelihoods. Yeah, we did a lot, lot of lockdowns with actually relatively poor outcomes, whereas at least the Antipodean lockdowns seem to have delivered a good well, outcome right. in terms of we locked down We locked down auto body paint shops where people wear respirators and we, and we let people have parties at home where, and and funerals, which and we're, we're, turns out to be right. where you or right. weddings, which turns out to be where you get COVID. Um, and then you know, what what is testing you know, in terms of strategic uh, testing that's effective? And I still oh the, the I, testing I kinda, catastrophe. Right. I'm sorry, I mean you, yeah. we, I just got I'm frothing at the mouth about <laughs> testing. We had also another technology of testing, which the FDA only in a year in is finally letting us have rapid testing. Uh, even if it's inaccurate, even if you didn't have vaccines, if you every morning find out who has it and who doesn't, even without draconian uh, restrictions on people, you can stop it very quickly. It's another great strategy, which we, I hope we can say, oh, gee, the CDC should have let us have the test. So it's interesting summer. if we think back over our discussions. Last year, it was all Trump's fault. That was the reason why the U.S. was doing terribly. Not Oddly enough, getting a new president didn't stop the pandemic. But interestingly, there have been publications recently, Michael Lewis's book and now Scott Gottlieb's, right. confirming that the real points of failure were CDC. I mean, sure, President oh, Trump made all yeah, kinds of mistakes, right. but I think it's clear now, and it's becoming clearer by the day, that the, the U.S. failure was a systemic failure of our public health bureaucracy, and, and two, and yeah, not just a presidential two, let, let him say that in, with capital letters, because right. there's in public discussion, there's always the president as God King who does everything yeah. and, you know, is in charge of exactly which sergeant is shooting which bullet where in Afghanistan. And no, the, 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 the president guides maybe a public bureaucracy, but the public bureaucracy says no to the president all, uh, quite, quite often. But the, 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 two big decisions, big the, the two big decisions that Donald Trump made, that President Trump made, that had a big impact on, uh, it would have been much worse if he hadn't made them, is shutting down travel from China, right? right? And and the conventional wisdom and advice from the CDC was not to do that. And the second was to pre-purchase the vaccines right. to remove speed, the risk. And, yeah. and 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 that was that, that those were those were tremendous decisions. And the only thing wrong with the first one was that it was two weeks too. It was late. too late, right. and Absolutely. there were holes in it that's, because that's there were exemptions right. for right. for U.S. Uh, right. uh, passport and green green card holders. That's but right. the instinct was actually right. And looking back on it, I think the question is why was it that those initial instincts did not determine policy? Because well, I remember thinking at the time, this is a perfect issue for President Trump. 
It's a problem that's arisen in China. It's a problem that argues for strong border controls, right. uh, and yet somehow... And unconventional risk-taking right. approaches. Yeah. All and, that. and somehow yeah. it played out disastrously for him politically. And I, you know, John, I think the answer is that the economists got the upper hand, because I remember being in Washington back in February last year, and the argument that really proved decisive was, we can't do anything that's going to disrupt the economy because that's what we're going to run on right. in November's election. And I, I look back on those debates when there were clearly people in the administration, like our new colleague Matt Pottinger, saying yeah. we have to cut down travel from China, right. we have to impose restrictions. Right. Senator Tom Cotton took that view too. But they were overridden by an argument that we had to keep the economy going. That was the key to election success. But then, of course, we locked down the economy and cratered it in, exactly. in uh, the, you know, the greatest fall yeah. in the economy that's right. ever been seen, yeah. fortunately, with a quick recovery afterwards. Now, Dr. Fauci has said after changing his mind, so Dr. Fauci a few days ago was asked, can we get together for Christmas? And in true Fauci fashion, he said, I don't know. And it's a fair answer because you're asking him to predict the future on this thing, and I wouldn't want to predict the future. And of course, the world exploded. Fauci is you know, saying we can't get together for Christmas, and he quickly modified it and said, I think he can get together for Christmas. But John, the supply chain crisis. Is there going to be anything under the tree? And I look at you, my friend, because you got to go shopping at some point for that little boy. Are you it's done already? Done already. It's done already. I mean, you got to plan ahead for Christmas when you've got a nine-year-old and a and a four-year-old. Okay. Tell me, he doesn't watch the show. <laughs> um, uh, no, uh, it's not. They're not our target audience. It's, it's not Paw Patrol. Uh, yeah, Paw Patrol. Although he could, has he's so bright. Hand. I would not. I mean, I think he. We should have him as a guest. I, I think no. Tom. I was going to propose that he stand in for me at some point. But you go into stores right now, and it looks sort of like COVID's full of flame because the shelves are starting to get clear. I, I remember, I remember walking to stores when COVID first blossomed. Oh my God, they were just completely empty aisles of cleaning products and toilet paper and so forth. But. But the supply chain crisis is not entirely a function of COVID, let's face it. Let's face it. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's a fascinating function of you cannot unload containers. There are people not, you cannot, you cannot put, bring the ships in, you cannot unload them, and then you cannot transport the conductor. And I think I saw a stat, John, where there's something like a million containers right now sitting off Yeah, now, now our, up until recently, uh, you said there was some news on this yes. recently, but... Um, you know, our, our container ports operate eight hours a day, not 24 hours a day. So this Chinese is what ones the... operate 24 hours a day. Right. There's a long list of regulations of who can drive the truck here, who can drive the truck there, right. and so on and so forth. So a lot of our supply issues, first of all, it's not just supply chains. Even if this were a vertically integrated company, if it were just supply, that right. one company would be having troubles if it, if it can't get people in. The whole logistics. A lot of supply in logistics, you know, we're, are we having a big labor market issue? You just can't hire people to do anything. And, and people are just sitting out of the labor market for a lot of reasons, uh, some of them involving getting money. But supply wouldn't be a problem if there weren't lots of demand. Supply, let me tell you what economics is about. Just supply <laughs> and there's demand. Okay, I'm, I, I am going to get college credit. You know, <laughs> You're going to get college credit. Teacher's professor. And this is why we kept the old, Remember the old Father Guido Sarducci not... skit on Saturday Night Live? If you, if you would just... If you could just remember what you would remember 30 years down the road, you would get college credit for that. So supply and demand for credit. There you is, like, right there. I get it now. It all makes, it all <laughs> I am an economist. The US right. did print up $6 trillion of brand new money and put it in people's bank accounts. Yeah. So you go buy and, stuff. And people are going out to buy stuff. And we just ran, I'm glad we found, we just ran the empirical test of, uh, of, um, modern monetary theory, which predicts that you should do that and nothing will happen. There, there is, this is a quote, there is always slack in the US economy. Well, it turns out that is false. So, you know, we're not, we're running into supply chain problems in part because there's a lot of sand in the gears, regulatory sand in the gears of the American economy. 
uh, a little bit because of COVID, a lot of disincentives of all the programs we run, but also because people people are buying stuff like crazy and yeah. and having sent six trillion dollars in brand new money. I mean, I'm I'm right about inflation, and and so I'm sort of professionally glad to see it, but uh, <laughs> sad sad to see that we the had rules to run still this work, experiment. I guess. Hey, what, what, I'd like to just table a, a radical idea, maybe for mm -hmm. another another show. What if we open forty consulates? in Mexico, in Central America, parts of South America, to issue temporary work visas uh, and, and made the process accessible while we secured our border and, and then solved our labor problem, generated revenue through the application fees of these, uh, of these, uh, of these temporary oh, work keep, visas. Let's keep going. And, and, uh, you know, and, and, and solved two problems at once. But, but and then instead of people lining up with coyotes, Right to mm -hmm. to be smuggled across the border, they're lining up at U.S. consulates. Well, right, why to, to, why, to get, why temporary? Get, so right now, in, in or, the, right, yeah, the New York Times right. proclaimed the child care cost crisis. There's everything is now the crisis, <laughs> but we now have a child care cost crisis. Gee, I wonder if there might be some people wandering around Central America, the Philippines, who'd like to come to the U.S. Well, and, and work to take care of children. It's clear that neither of you gentlemen want jobs in the next Donald Trump administration. Kind <laughs> 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 of be but part me, of his platform. I just want to add one thing to what you said. There, uh, we're talking about infrastructure, and one piece of infrastructure the U.S. is terrible at is our government infrastructure. Why does it take years for the State Department to process visas, visas for our for our Afghan interpreters? It's just it's just stuck in the bowels of the State Department for years. Right. Right. Uh, why you know it's cheap? Why do we not where we have people who are coming in and uh, and they're stuck in the immigration uh, court system for years? Why don't we have five times as many immigration judges? Absolutely. So I'm completely with you. Absolutely. Uh, why do we just not have the machinery of government at an adequate right. scale? That is infrastructure every bit as much right. as roads and bridges. And, and HR is going back to his Philly roots. When in doubt, look for union jobs. That's, that's what you want to, because this is what you're going to need. You need more union jobs at the ports where people unload, and also going to need more truck drivers. But truck drivers, apparently, you can start at like $50,000 right now. Truck driving is. Absolutely. Wasn't it only three years ago we, we were discussing, oh, AI is going to come and all the truck drivers will be unemployed. Yes. What are we going to do? We have to have universal basic income. <laughs> okay, question for you, Neil. We see in the time of COVID, people panic and they go in and they hoard, they buy toilet paper and cleaning supplies. If you had to hoard a product, what would you hoard? What, what could you not live without? Malt whiskey. Malt whiskey. Yeah, the terror is always in my heart that there'll suddenly be a, a massive prohibitive tariff imposed by protectionist anti-total president. Uh, yeah, you got to stockpile malt gotta whiskey. Got to buy that Kentucky bourbon from the good old U.S. Well, this foreign I, I will occasionally drink bourbon. I'm not a complete. Uh, I'm not a complete zealot, but I genuinely do stockpile Scotch whiskey. HR, what would you? What do we stockpile? Well, I want. That's not hair products. Uh, <laughs> let me think what it could be. I, way, I guess. But, well, I'll keep on the alcohol theme. I guess yeah. Pinot Noir. Uh, that's been my yeah. hobby. Is like I just keep joining clubs and ordering Pinot. A very nice I'm, Pinot. I'm well, you I'm, well, too. I'm, I'm well. I'm well stocked. I'm well By the stocked. way, a few minutes ago, HR, the sun was setting in the west, and you just you were angelic. The so much is glowing off your head. John, what can you? I, I just got to put in a, a plug for it's ridiculous that we uh, we don't let companies raise prices in yeah. times of shortage. Why do people? If you said, sure, you can have all the toilet paper you want, it's 10 bucks a roll, people would suddenly figure out, well, maybe I don't need 100 rolls today <laughs> after all. Uh, and it's just, it's one of the many pathologies of our country and our economic system that we, in the time when prices should allocate scarce resources most, we don't let it happen. I've been to you, the only thing I can, I can think of that you hoard uh, 
is paintings by your daughter, of which you have, <laughs> and they're wonderful. I mean, you have an amazing yeah, collection of yeah, your daughter's put, art. Why don't we put it and, in and they are none of them for sale at, at any price. We, we actually do, uh, my wife has sort of in COVID has turned to a food hoarder and it's just amazing. We, we could go months. Uh, you'd, you'd like what, a pantry full of cans or? A uh, pantry full of cans, freezers full of stuff. Uh, okay, we're winding down here. You embarrassed me and you were right. We're not going to be able to cover all the subjects today. So once again, you're right and I'm wrong. So things don't change. Um, let's try to end this on a light note. So I was driving over here a little while ago and I had my radio on the classic vinyl station and they were playing Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, which they rarely do. Usually it's just one track. They're playing the whole album. And I love that album. That is a transformative album for me. I love that thing. Hanging on in quiet desperation is the English way. Yeah. Agree, disagree. <laughs> I disagree. I always hated Pink Floyd. I mean, part of the reason punk rock... <laughs> no, part of the reason Continue punk, to beat me up punk rock was invented to get rid of Pink Floyd. Oh. So for me, the advent of the Sex Pistols was particularely welcome because it meant getting rid of Pink Floyd. How, how about early Pink Floyd, like metal, right? Like, what was the one? The six furry little animals... Living in a cave and grooving with believe, a pit. I can't believe right? I'm on a show with I mean, Pink Floyd fans. <laughs> this is like... Singular. <laughs> well, we're not, we're not British. We hear the British accent. We think this is impossibly clever. I have to like it. I am sorry. Yeah, well, I've been Unfortunately, none of us will be cut years. either. What is your go-to album, Neil? Go-to what, album. What could you just play to death? The greatest rock and roll album of all time mm -hmm. is Exile on Main Street by the Rolling Stones. And as Charlie Watts just... Uh, shuffled off this mortal coil i just i just have i have to mention that i think the stones transcend just about every other band in the in the genre and funnily enough they're still playing in fact they're still touring i read a story yesterday that mick jagger went into a dive bar and nobody recognized him that made me feel old. I bet, I bet it made him feel old. Paul McCartney just called them, I think, what, a second-rate blues band? Was that the uh, insult? So I, I remember oh, like, I love the fact that they're having at one another. Yes. <laughs> I mean, septuagenarians. <laughs> it's impressive, but they still bear a grudge. In 1969, we had fights about, uh, literally, about who was a Beatles fan versus who was a Rolling Stones fan. Do you know what? I'm gonna I was say, a Beatles I'm going to say so. something controversial <laughs> of just for a change. I think the Stones have worn... Better music has has worn better than yeah. the Beatles. Except, I listen except, to the Beatles now, and it feels like you know I'm really going back in time. The Stone stuff makes you feel kind of like warm and stuff, right. and you know. Except brown the, sugar, brown it sugar gets you fired been, up. Brown, brown sugar has been cancelled, and they will not I, play it. I, I, it's amazing to me that it took this long. So it's actually officially cancelled. They yeah. say they will not play it anymore in the concerts. Well, so I mean, okay, I'll, I'll say you know I don't want to. You know, pee back on Rolling Stones, but the Hot Rocks album, you know, was a, an album that I played the heck out of in, the, in that, you know, as I was entering college. But I have to, I have to make a, you know, make a case for Led Zeppelin here, you know, and yeah. and I would say the Physical Graffiti album yeah. if I had to pick an album, yeah. you know. But I mean, that has also all, stood the test of time. Yeah, stood the test of time. John, I'm, I have to. You know, we're showing our age. We should edit this whole section out because everyone's going to say, "My God, how old they are!" Okay, Taylor Swift. Be my I'm best. no, I'm I'm stuck in the uh, in the. James Taylor, Joni Mitchell, Crosby, Stills, and Nash era, and you are not. That was before he became grumpy. He was all cuddly then. He but you rely like... on your children to update your musical tastes, and so periodically I'm I'm subjected to oh, whatever is hey. cutting edge. Nine-year-olds are into something called Friday Night well, Funkin', then... which is, and I'm required to listen to this on a fairly regular basis and if, if anything is going to make you love your old vinyl collection Wait. it is the stuff your kids listen to well, then you, you gotta look Friday up, like, night 
Friday Night Funkin'. It's a Friday game. Friday Night Funkin', it's okay. A, it's a game on Roblox, the platform of choice for kids of uh, nine or ten years old. And remember, just to show that we're not entirely rooted in the past, the future, to an extent that most people watching will be surprised by, is going to be about gaming and the integration of games as entertainment with uh, the entire metaverse of, of Web3. Now, we're going to have a whole special edition one day on cryptocurrency. When we do that, I will be talking about this transformation of entertainment, which is going to leave us in our collections of, of old 1960s and 70s LPs looking a little bit like the dinosaur skeletons in the museum. I'll give you an example of being old. I am a glutton for punishment. I sign up for campaign emails because I always like to see how campaigns are messaging, what they're trying to sell you. It's just a way to see if they're on their game or not. The Biden campaign was very clever last year, and they must have somehow figured out how old I am because I kept getting emails from Carol King, the 1970s musician, Tapestry. When I was about 12 years old, Tapestry was a big album. But each week, the email saying, hi, it's Carol. You know, Please donate to our campaign. I kept looking at Carol King to think, is there some younger Carol King? Is there somebody? But somehow they knew that I'm an advanced yeah. male, and so Carol well, King came out. I just want to make sort of a cross-generational observation. Our, our youngest daughter was a, a DJ at University of Virginia. Ah. She has a turntable. She has my vinyl collection, my wife's vinyl collection, and her own vinyl collection. And she is of our era, and her knowledge of music and musicians of the period is yeah. encyclopedic. But she also gets the contemporary scene, and she's built for me playlists for the courses that I teach here at Stanford in the, in the GSB. So I teach a course <laughs> on building strategic competence, right? And and each each you know lesson has a you know song associated with it. And and um, I'll put it I'll put it out. We'll put it, it out on our website. We a playlist to go with the course. This is very cutting edge. No, it's, no, it's, it's, you know, so it's bumper music because people are coming because we're doing it on Zoom. It made it more fun, you know. And, it is remarkable what the internet has <laughs> like done. It. That our my children, we have we have four kids, have been so much more aware of the culture that I grew up with and historical culture than 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 we. You get to be sort of a jazz aficionado and wear a beret if you were going to listen to big band music when we were young. But my kids know all about the kind of stuff we grew up with, and in fact, the continuity of American culture since about 1968 has been really remarkable. They, they dress, you know, they, they put on jeans and t-shirts the way we did 50 years ago. Uh, and, um, you know, a lot of the music is, is not as different from uh, the music of the 1970s. But I, ju I, just I, I have to put in a, if you want to know what the young kids listen to, listen to my kids' band, Hard, Hard Femme, which is... Uh, Wait, we're, we're plugging your son's music I, and your daughter's <laughs> art. daughter's <laughs> art. I think this is getting close to being This is an economist. <laughs> making money. Hey, I'm just going to make a pitch for the Grateful Dead, too, because ah. my daughter's a huge Dead fan, and... And uh, and I've become one because I had the you know privilege of getting to know Mickey Hart. He's just a wonderful person, and uh, and so you know my I, my daughter th thought I I finally made it when when I was able to 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 go backstage with her and uh, and have some time with Mickey before a concert. And we sat he sat us on the stage to watch the concert, and and uh, we met Bill Walton and had a great time with the band, and it was just it was really a special special event. I, I just wish special the, the, the young people of of today, even if they're getting into that music from our era, were also imbibing the kind of free speech values of the late sixties, early seventies. Because one one thing that really is different about the generation that's in yeah. college today compared with the generation that was was around at the time of Woodstock is that. Back then, free speech was front and center of rock and roll culture. And today, nope. uh, what I'm struck by is, well, 
you are making the skeptical face of the grumpy economist. But let me tell yeah, you, I'm, I'm going to be working on that face while you let, while let you me tell me you something. where we are today in the, in 20-something culture and college campuses. So a survey was done earlier this year of college campuses. They asked uh, students in four-year programs right across the country, a big sample, if a professor said something that you found offensive in class, would you report the professor to the university administration? 82% of self-described liberal students said yes. yes. And if it was one of their fellow students who said the offensive thing, 76% would have reported the student to the university. Now, that's definitely not the spirit of the Grateful Dead or the Rolling Stones or the late 60s and early 70s. Well, uh, no, no, no. But with the Vietnam War, uh, <laughs> the, the, this liberal spirit of the late 60s was free speech for us. But the beginning of the great disparagement of conservative speech, uh, how Republicans are immoral, none of us could possibly be, you know, Nixon didn't help, but that whole, uh, whole event. So I really trace, it's a more extreme version, but that kind of, uh, the, the 1950s of America, of, oh, I'm a Democrat, you're a Republican, fine, let's have dinner together and we'll, we'll discuss things a little bit. That uh, fell away from the left in the late Vietnam War era, and has just been getting worse ever since. But I, it was quite common then. Um, you know, Moynihan talks about what happened when he went to work for the Nixon administration, and all the Har the Harvard faculty would not speak to him anymore. His kids were getting harassed at school. That was 1968. Uh, so we've we've been at that for a while. Yeah. I right. think what's different about today that maybe makes it even a little bit worse today is the sense of a lack of agency, right? When you put systemic or institutional in front of whatever the malady is, what you're saying is that you, you have no prospect for improvement. And so I think what we wind up with today is really a toxic combination of anger and resignation. And I think that's really what's affecting our younger generation more, even more than this you know, sense of the counterculture and wanting to change. I mean, I think there are a lot of people saying that we're always, we're not gonna be able to to make improvements, and I think that results in in kind of some of the divisions that we're seeing, the you know the extraordinary degree of you know vitriolic uh, nature of the discourse, and and so um, that's what I'm concerned about. I think we ought to tell our young people, hey, you know, you live in a democracy, right? You have agency. You can affect change by demanding better because you you know you have a vote. You know you have a voice. You have freedom of speech. So I, I think that and you also have freedom to listen. That's right, <laughs> and freedom to and freedom to listen. Okay, you said dinner. To it's a good one another. You, know? you said dinner. It's time to go. The sun's setting in the west. HR's head is no longer glowing, so we know it's time to go. You got to go write a book. I got to go home and shred all my Pink Floyd CDs. So. <laughs> anyway, thanks for watching today. I hope you enjoyed this live in person edition of Goodfellas. I know we did. I hope did you guys enjoy this? It was great to be together. Oh, I thought that's it was great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Go on. Yeah. Goodbye, great, Zoom. Yeah. Next time, perhaps a little malt whiskey for you. <laughs> oh, we should definitely try that after ours, Goodfellas. <laughs> anyway, that's it for this week. Uh, thanks as always for watching. We'll be back next week with a new show, new conversation. On behalf of the Goodfellas, Neil Ferguson, H. McMaster, John Cochran. Thanks for watching. Take care. We'll see you soon. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring HR McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org/battlegrounds.